We come now to our sermon for the morning. We're going to be in the book of Jonah, the book of the prophet Jonah and the minor prophets. And if you have your Bible, be turning there. Uh, the ministry of the 12 prophets, the minor prophets, as they're often called, uh, cover around 300 years of Israel's history, and that's roughly 760 B.C. to 450 B.C. It's roughly the period of time they're in. They're split about evenly between the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. They're warning, certainly, of impending judgment, uh, the wrath of God coming upon His own people. That's a large theme of the minor prophets. And then there are post-exile prophets who remind, as we've looked at recently with Haggai, of the responsibilities of the people and that God has not forgotten His promises. Jonah is in that early group of prophets that are centered right around 760, 740, somewhere in that range, B.C., and, uh, and was warning the northern kingdom of coming judgment and coming destruction. Many of the prophets were. Jonah's unique here, isn't he? Because he's not really speaking to his own people. He has spoken to his own people in the past, but now God is calling him to do something different. So he falls just after the great prophets, like Elijah and Elisha. He follows right after them, maybe one generation afterwards. This gave rise to some uh, legends uh, amongst the uh, Jewish people as to who exactly Jonah is, but we don't know. Not much is said about him. We have the description of Jonah here and elsewhere as the son of Amittai. So if you know who Amittai is, you know his dad, right? That's kind of the idea here. But this is Jonah. That's all we know about him. And so he's called to preach. And the focus of this is on a foreign nation. We know the basic storyline. I don't think it's going to uh, confuse anyone to say that. But it is unusual because his message is not primarily to the covenantal people of God. And I think that's what confuses Jonah here. God is calling him to a ministry outside of his covenantal relationship to Israel. Now, we as Baptists argue in our covenant theology that there's already a covenant made with Abraham that was really two-pronged, if you will, a national or covenantal agreement to a people, but also a spiritual covenant made with the seed of Abraham. And that would fall in line with that promise, with that promise given to Abraham. But when you look at it here, we come to this important point where Jonah is thinking of himself as a prophet to Israel, and now he's being called to do something beyond what he's comfortable with. And so he's not going to minister to Jews, but he's called to minister to Gentiles. Now, this is a book that we all know. We've known this book. Uh, if you've been in a Christian family or been in church, you've heard it your whole life. It's a story that is amazing. Because at its base, it is a simple story. A child can understand it. A child can follow the story, and they're captivated by this story. It's one of those stories that as a child, we often think about, talk about, uh, reflect on. But it's a story that is layered with meaning and theology. Therefore, it's a story that if you come back to time and again, you see depths of riches that are given here and some challenges that are given. And it's a book that is difficult to interpret because there's many themes in it. And people try to come up with one dominant theme. And it's not easy when you walk through carefully the book of Jonah. There's many things that God is dealing with in this text. And so we need to think about all of that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is you probably know the book of Jonah. You probably know the storyline. not asking you to forget it. But try to look at it with fresh eyes as we begin to journey into this story. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah, and we're going to look at the first three verses again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now this is what sets everything in motion, isn't it? The call of God, the message that he wants him to send, which is implied in what he's told him, and the fact that Jonah is reluctant. We often call him the reluctant prophet. I don't know if that even describes what's happening here, just reluctance. He doesn't say, well, let me have a couple days to think about it. He says, no, I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else, and we'll look at that today. As we look at this text under the banner of the folly of withstanding God, I want us to look at these three points. First of all, Jonah, the man of God. Second of all, Assyria, the enemy of Israel. And third, Tarshish, the way of folly. So beginning first with this idea of Jonah, the man of God, as we see in this study, we need to look at Jonah for what he is. He is presented uh, as a prophet of God, a prophet of God, a man called by God, not some wicked servant. You sometimes hear Jonah dealt with this way. Jonah is a man resistant, but to call him wicked is to miss biblical theology. Uh, That is totally not the case. He resists God in the way many of the prophets of God do, many of the way the men of God do. Let's not forget that over and over again, God gives His servants simple instructions, and time and again, they disobey them. Abraham is told several times, I am going to do this for you, Abraham. I will give you a seed. And Abraham over and again says, No, God, I'm going to take it out of your hands and do it myself. Does that make Abraham wicked? No, Abraham's the father of faith. But he's a human being, and God understands and is working on us. That is part of our sanctification, and you'll see this with Jonah. Jonah, we don't get the rosy picture at the end of a man uh, bursting as a model of faith for us, but we see a man that God is disciplining and working on. But to say that, that Jonah is a prophet of God is absolutely true, not only from this text, but we have another text, don't we? Uh, we talk often about how there's so little said about Jonah, but there is one other place where Jonah is spoken of, and it's in Second Kings chapter 14. In this amazing section of Scripture, and I want you to listen here as I read it. If you've got your Bibles, follow along, certainly. But listen to what it says. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. Now we could go on to read exactly some of the things that he did, of who he rescued the people from. But what's amazing about this is when you think about this message, this previous example of of this prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, he's been used by God before in a major way. He prophesied a coming day of the expansion of the kingdom to the territory that it once held, Israel, the northern kingdom the despicable northern kingdom, right? He said, they will recapture the land that they've lost. Now, this was not due to the holiness of the people. 
This was not due to the holiness of their king. What does it say about their king, Jeroboam II? He continued to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord as had his fathers. The story has not changed. Israel has had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. In fact, the northern kingdom was born out of wickedness, out of withstanding the plan of God. Right? Jeroboam said, yeah, we're not going to follow the man God picked. We're going to take Jeroboam, right? We're going to follow Jeroboam, not Rehoboam. And furthermore, we're not going to go down and worship any longer in Jerusalem at the temple. We're going to create our own centers of worship in the northern kingdom up in Samaria, as the Bible calls it. And so we're going to do it our way and expect God to bless our way. Now, my friends, we might think God's blessings would completely cease on Israel at that point. Certainly by the days of Jeroboam II, you've had this wickedness. Generation after generation after generation, the people are crying out. They're in misery. How could God bless these people? And yet God sends Jonah, the prophet, the son of Amittai, to say to them, God still remembers you. He hasn't blotted out all remembrance of you under heaven. He has heard and seen that you have no Savior, so God Himself will deliver you. God will restore the land that you've lost through all these generations. And who does it happen under? Again, Jeroboam II, this wicked king. Like, this is hard to figure out. This is hard even for the prophets to figure out. And by the way, there are many things that God does that the prophets themselves struggle to understand. God, how do you allow this wickedness in Judah? God says, I'm not going to allow it for much longer. Good, good. He says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans to wipe it out. The prophet says, how could you do that? How could you use a more wicked people to judge our wickedness? In the same way we see it here, There's this need, if you will, for God to step in in a way that isn't expected. But Jonah is the man that God has called to give this message. And guess what? It occurs. What is the test of a prophet? Does his prophecy show to be true? Does it come to pass? If it does, he's a prophet of God. If it does not, then he is considered a false prophet. And the consequences for that were quite severe, weren't they? As they should be. But again... There's a promise of victory, of expansion of territory, and God delivers it. And again, not because of any holiness in the people, but because of God's mercy. His mercy. Listen to 26 and 27 again. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. And whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Very unexpected, except that it reminds us of the covenantal nature of what God is at work to do. The covenantal nature of what God is at work to do. So we come back to Jonah. We come back to Jonah, and we find another prophet who is called to do something very unexpected. Something so unexpected, he hates it. Let's call it what it is. He hates what God is going to do. He hates it so much he wants no part of it. And yet it's still the same thing, isn't it? Showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. So when you think about this, what this helps us to do is place where this happens. This is somewhere in the reign of King Jeroboam, probably in the latter half, somewhere around uh, 750 B.C. So God is calling Jonah again. That's where we start in our text. He's calling Jonah again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
That's the background here. This message, this calling comes to him again. Get up, rise up, and do that which I've called you to do. Now, the great Puritan uh, Matthew Henry says, what an honor this is, that God would use you in a major way, not just once, but a second time. A second time to call you to such an important task. God is not confused. He's not blind to see what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's in Jonah's heart, yet he calls him again to this mission. It's interesting that Jonah is identified here as Bar Amittai, son of Amittai. His name itself, Jonah, means dove. And scholars, especially the the Hebrew scholars, try to figure out if this is a reference to him being a messenger of peace. He certainly was to Israel in 2 Kings. But he is actually, whether he wants to be or not, a messenger of peace to the dreaded Assyrians. To the Assyrians. And so here Jonah, this, this prophet of God, is told to arise, get up, and go on this important mission that I've called you to. Now, Jonah's an honorable prophet. We've already established this. He's been tested in days past. So what do we expect the next line to be? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh as the Lord commanded him. But that's not what we find. We know this. And we've heard many times the reasoning for why that is, haven't we? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. I think even in the materials we show our kids, like Veggie Tales and stuff, it has on there that he was afraid of the Ninevites. But that isn't true at all. His fe- he has fear, for sure, but it's not toward the Assyrians. His fear is toward God. His fear, he tells us himself, In the last chapter of this book, I feared your grace, God. I knew you are merciful. I knew if they repented, you would forgive these evil people. And Jonah says, I wanted no part of it. I wanted no part of your grace, God. Well, maybe the part that falls to me and my people. But I don't want your grace going to the people I don't want it to go to. And so again, we're going to see this as we move forward. So as we move to our second point this morning, Assyria, the enemy of Israel, we'll see exactly why that is. Assyria was one of the major powers of the ancient world. And actually, the Assyrians are often shorthand in the scriptures for evil. In the same way Egypt is, the same way Babylon is, Assyria is seen as an evil empire, if you will, in its day. And uh, Nineveh was its leading city. Nineveh would, just a short time later, become its capital city. And would eventually be overthrown. But in this day, it was a rising city of power, a great city, one of the great cities of the ancient world. If you think about this time, you see an age of empires. Syria, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Medes, the Persians. All these are dominant powers that are struggling for dominance. And each of them have their day, don't they? You see Syria and Assyria at war. Sometimes Syria is in the lead. Sometimes Assyria. Sometimes Egypt. Babylon comes along and wrecks them all. And then you come to the age of the Medes and the Persians who overthrow Babylon. This is the way it worked. They all had their day, if you will. And they were all dominant powers that used ruthless power to to hold on to what they had. But the Assyrians were unique. The Assyrians were unique. And we can look at this not only in the history of Scripture, but also in secular history it's recorded. How brutal the Assyrians were. They were notorious for their brutality. In fact, they they weren't the strongest military at times. And so what did they do? They ruled through fear, right, through fear. And what do I mean? Well, we have children in the room, so I'm not going to go into the details of the things that they did. But let's just say as a strategy, what their strategy was, when they come to your town to demand tribute, 
and surrender, you obey it, or they make an example of you that will be remembered for thousands of years. And they did just that. They did just that. And it wasn't just that they didn't leave survivors, which often they didn't. They perfected how to torture people over long periods of time before they would die. And all this is in history. You can read it if you'd like to. It's pretty uh, gruesome. But they wanted it to be an example. You heard what happened to this other kingdom when they did not do what they were commanded to do. And so you said, look, if we resist them and we lose, everything we have will be destroyed and in the most gruesome and brutal ways. The whole ancient world hated the Assyrians. Nobody wept when Assyria fell. Even the people who profited from Assyria had trade deals with Assyria were happy when they were gone because there was fear because of the Assyrians. And it wasn't as if this was only theoretical to the Israelites. They had been dealing with Assyria for quite a long time. Four generations before the time we're reading about, Yehu had dealt with Assyria. Assyria had conquered or defeated Israel in a battle, and he had began to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. And this happened for four generations of kings of Israel. They paid tribute to the kings of Assyria. And they did it for what reason? If you stop, we will come and slaughter everyone. Everyone. In the most gruesome and brutal ways, we will slaughter them. Your women, your children, everyone. So these were not people who were beloved in the ancient world. They were hated. So Jeroboam was just another king, Jeroboam II, just another king in a long line of those kings that had to deal with Assyria and had been afraid of Assyria and paid tribute to Assyria. But now the world stage is shifting temporarily and Assyria is weakening. And maybe you have some hopes that Assyria is going to go away. Maybe they're weakening enough now that some upstart nation can come in and overthrow them or maybe one of the more established kingdoms can overthrow them or maybe a couple will come in together and overthrow them. But it's a period of weakness. Unfortunately for all nations, Israel being one of them, although in the providence of God, Assyria will rise to power again will rise to power again. In fact, in just 40 years, it will be the dominant power again when it conquers Israel in 722. The dominant power again. But there's this little lull, this little weak spot. And I'm sure all Israelites, as everyone in the ancient Near East, were saying, please God, overthrow this evil nation. If there's a nation anywhere in the world that is evil, here it is, throw it, get rid of it, destroy it. That's the message I'm sure Jonah was hoping for. And here he gets a message from God. He gets a message. And what does it say? It says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, arise, get up, and go up to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Preach a warning from God against it. That's what he means here, right? Call it out for what it is. Tell it its wickedness. And the Lord has seen it. It's not like Jonah's the only one that's seen it. It's not like this has escaped God's eyes. God says what? For their wickedness has come up before me. I've seen it all. I know it all. I know the wickedness of this people. Go and tell them that they're wicked. Now we get more details later because Jonah tells them, you're going to be overthrown, right? God will bring you down if you do not repent of this. So we're assuming all that's in this message he's receiving in this shorthand. But what does he do? He's not happy, is he? He's not happy. Now we might not understand at first why. If we've kind of been mistaught the story through the years that Jonah's afraid to go to Nineveh, 
afraid of the Ninevites, we might really be confused by all of this. The reality is, Jonah knows immediately what's about to take place. He realizes our God of grace and mercy is going to extend it to the Assyrians. All they have to do is repent of their sin, and he's going to receive them and at least relent of destruction for them. Maybe that's the wording we should use. At least relent from destroying them. And hey, Jonah says, I'm all for getting rid of them while we have the chance. Now we could point out that we don't know the exact dates. It's hard to tell with some of these minor prophets. They're all of the same era. Many of them were contemporaries. But there are other minor prophets that are prophesying a coming judgment on Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. I don't know if Jonah was foolish enough to think we can escape that, you know, if Assyria is destroyed. But I think he understands that Assyria is a long-term threat to the people of God, at least to the northern kingdom of Israel. It seems to be a threat even for Judah, doesn't it? They don't stop in 722 at the border of Israel. They come down to Jerusalem, and God protects the city. But again, notice this is a threat. He knows this. How can it be that God would bless a despicable people? Now, this is what we call a theodicy. If you were here Wednesday night in Pilgrim's Progress, we talked about this very thing, didn't we? How can God bless a wicked people? This is basically a theodicy is asking for justification of God. Explain yourself, God. This is what Habakkuk does. Explain yourself, God. By the way, it's what many people do. Explain yourself, God. Jonah doesn't understand. How can you bless a wicked people? Now, the easy answer is, you didn't mind it when he was blessing your wicked people. You didn't mind it when judgment didn't fall upon you in that day, and in fact, blessing fell upon you, and your territory re-expanded. You didn't mind any of it then. You mind it when it goes to someone else. Now, I wonder if we read the text, I think, more as Jonah would have hoped, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, tell them judgment's coming. That does eventually come for Assyria too, doesn't it? But if he tells them it's coming soon for you, I think Jonah with joy jumps up and goes on this journey, goes 600 miles northeast to what is now modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. I think he goes with joy, ready to proclaim, you all are about to be wiped out. But it seems when he finds out what God's intentions are, he wants nothing to do with it. So how do we explain it? Well, I think if you look here, we come to this part of looking at our third point, Tarshish, the way of folly, because this is a story of folly, isn't it? It's a story of a great man thinking somehow, I don't have to be a part of what God is calling me to do. In fact, God says to him what? Rise up, go this 600 miles to the northeast, get up and go up. And yet, the text tells us Jonah doesn't do that. He goes the other direction, the exact other direction. In fact, if you follow the text, it's kind of interesting. He's supposed to get up and go up, and instead he gets up and goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the port. He goes in and down into the ship. He goes down into sleep. He goes down into the water. He goes down into the depths of the sea. He goes down into the bowels of the fish. He's called to go up. He goes down. He goes the exact opposite of what God calls him to do. And this isn't coincidental. This is 
the Hebrew wordplay in the text. It's a brilliantly written history. This man goes down, 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 down. This Galilean prophet cannot go any more opposite of the way that God has called him to go than what he has done. At the port of Joppa, he pays his way onto the boat to Tarshish. Tarshish is uh, the Phoenician port city, a colony, if you will, in this day of what would later be called Gaul. Most scholars think this is Spain, France, somewhere in that area. He wants to get as far away as he can from what we would call today Iraq. He wants to get away from this city. Now, why does he do this? Well, look at what it says. To escape the presence of the Lord. That explanation is found twice in verse 3, isn't it? But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to go Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then he says not only this, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And oftentimes people will say, oh, this Jonah, he's so foolish. Now we could argue that he is a little foolhardy at times. But they say, how could he think he could escape the presence of the Lord? Well, the reality is he doesn't think he's going to go someplace that God can't see him or find him. When God finds him on the ship, he's not surprised. He knows immediately, this is because of me. This whole thing is happening because God knows exactly where I'm at. He doesn't think he's going to escape the view, the gaze, the knowledge of of God and where he's at. He thinks he can escape the presence of the Lord. This is covenantal language. Again, God's place is with his people. Right? We can see this over and over. When the Bible speaks of presence in an omnipresent God, it means the place where he has called people to him for the purpose of worship. On Mount Sinai, you went up the mountain into the presence of God. At the tabernacle, you went into the tent, into the presence of God. In the temple, you entered the temple and even the Holy of Holies into the presence of God. Is that the only place God is? It's a representative place of where God is. That's the point. It symbolizes the presence of God amongst His people. Jonah is saying, I'm leaving the place of God's presence amongst His people. I'm leaving Israel. I'm leaving this place where God speaks and where He dwells in a special way where there's a people who is, are His portion, are His allotment, a people that He's called His own treasure, a, a term used in the Scriptures in here. He says, I'm leaving this place where God has put a treasured people together and I'm going to go far away from it to a place that isn't where God's people are. Now why is that? Your guess is as good as mine. But I think that you can think about some other people in the Scriptures and some warnings that they give and and think about what it might be. I think about Esther, right? Mordecai says to her that there is a dangerous moment upon us and you could avoid what I believe he's saying is your responsibility in this moment and maybe death will come to you. But God is still going to deliver His people. Do you think someone is acquainted with God as Jonah thinks God's not going to do the very thing he set out to do? If God is going to deliver the Assyrians, is Jonah running to Tarshish going to stop that? No, I think Jonah knows that. But Jonah says, I don't have to be a part of it. I don't have to be a part of it, God. I don't have to be the one to go and deliver this message to these evil and wicked people. Find someone else to do it. Find someone else. As for me, I'm going as far away as I can. 
I'm going someplace where I won't be troubled with this anymore. Find somebody else to do it. But if we think about Mordecai, Mordecai says, if you go that route, Esther, God's still going to deliver His people. Right? God's still going to deliver His people. He may raise up someone else to do it. You may die in the process, but He's still going to do it. God isn't in the process of saying, you know what, I had a plan, but people won't cooperate with me, and so I'm just going to have to come up with something new. That isn't how God works. Right? That is not our understanding of God. I think Paul Washer years ago said it's like the image of God on a, on a wooden crown with a Burger King crown on, you know, on a, excuse me, on a wooden throne with a Burger King crown, saying, I wish somebody would just help me. That isn't the God that we read about in Scripture. This God wills to bring this message to the Syrians. It's going to happen. What I think Jonah doesn't foresee is that God comes after him to do it. God doesn't let Jonah just walk away. God pursues Jonah and says, Jonah, I have called you to do this. You're going to do it. Whatever it takes, you're going to do it. Even if it takes incredible miracles. So incredible that the liberal theologians and scholars' minds explode, don't they? Well, this can't literally be true. We've done the measurements on whales in that era and the stomach's not quite large enough or whatever nonsense they want to come up with today. The Bible says God did this miracle, right? Intervene and stop Jonah and say, Jonah, you're going to do the very thing I've called you to do, one way or the other. Now, God, all the while, is teaching Jonah about grace. I don't want to jump ahead too much. But Jonah, you've been a messenger of grace to a people who didn't deserve it. I'm calling you to do the same thing to the Assyrians. If Jeroboam II got what he deserved, he'd be wiped out, and so would all of you. In Israel, it's only by my grace that you remain. And what about on this ship? Jonah has disobeyed God. What is the penalty for sin? Jonah goes into the water. We're going to see this next week. He does not expect to survive, does he? He has sinned against God. He has been rebellious against God. He's thrown into the depths of the sea. He should die there. But God graciously intervenes again. Not only to save his life, but to fulfill the mission that he called him on. And so all of this we find in our text. And he himself says that he worships the God who created all that exists, heavens and earth. Jonah knows exactly who he serves. He's not blind to it. Maybe we could think that if this is the first time we encounter Jonah in the text. But Jonah is well known. Maybe not to us, but Most people point out the way this is worded at the very beginning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. People knew who he was. The author expected, you know who Jonah is. If it's Jonah who wrote this, Jonah says, they know who I am. I gave a famous prophecy one generation before the generation that's reading this. Everyone heard of the word of the Lord that came through this prophet of Israel's borders being re-secured and expanded. So here he is. And the entire point of this, the entire point of this is God says, no, Jonah, you're going to be the one to do it. You're going to be the one to do it. Now, there's a measure of grace there, isn't there? That Jonah's not just written off, wiped out, destroyed. Jonah is gracefully, graciously called back into the mission that he's been sent upon. But we also don't want to miss what's happening here, right? This is the withstanding of God. I think about in Acts where Peter says, 
uh, when, when they asked him why he went into the Gentiles' house and all these things that he had done that they thought was inappropriate, he said what? Who am I to withstand God? We baptized them. We did what we were called to do because it was clear what God was doing. God called us to do something. It was clear. It is sin to withstand God, but more than that, it's folly to withstand God. Think about this just for a moment. God is still going to do exactly what He's desiring to do, exactly what He's said He's going to do. Assyria will still be preached this message. And in fact, more than that, Jonah, you're going to be the one to do it, one way or the other. So you can either do what God has called you to do, or you're going to be made to do what God has called you to do. There's so many things like this, my friends, that we think about. We can withstand God's work. We can withstand His plan. We can not like what God is doing. Oftentimes that happens. That's not something that we find only in the Old Testament. What's the main battle of the New Testament? The Gentiles are just ushered right in. They're just ushered right in. As if there's no history that happened before. As if we aren't a special people set apart by God in the Old Covenant. That, that this is really what Romans 9 is about, isn't it? How do you understand what God has been doing? How do you understand it? And are you going to withstand it? Are you going to withstand what God is doing? Because, my friends, it's not smart and it's not safe to do. What God has called us to do, we need to be doing, joyfully doing. And so, again, Jonah does serve. He's not just an example in this. But he does serve to remind us of this, that it is folly to withstand God, just as it was for Habakkuk to question God just as it was for anybody in the New Testament to question God. God is merciful. He explains things. Thank goodness for that because we are slow to learn sometimes. But there comes a point like Jonah where we're not slow to learn. We just don't like what God is doing. We just say, I want no part of it. I'm not going to be helpful in it. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to withstand it. My friends... Jonah is an example of why we should not do that. Again, I look to Peter. Peter's a good counterexample, if you will. Peter says, when it was clear to us what God was doing, when it was made clear to us what God is doing, who are we to withstand him? If God wants to bring the mercy to the Assyrians, I don't understand it. They're a wicked and bloodthirsty people. But who am I to question God? Who am I to withstand God? My friends, if you go back to what we were talking about on Wednesday night, in the end, mercy, not understanding at all what God was doing in allowing this dog to be so near the gate of entrance to the, the wicked gate, and she questions him. And at the end, she realizes, my question was in ignorance. I should never have questioned it. For what? Christ does all things well. God does all things well. Jonah couldn't see it. How is keeping Assyria around good for Israel? Well, it isn't really, is it? Israel's going to be judged eventually by the Assyrians. But none of that is outside of God's sovereign and providential plan to do what he was actually at work to do, which was to bring a Savior into the world. And through that Savior, redemption for his people. My friends, it's hard to grasp. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It's hard sometimes in that moment to accept what God is doing. But He calls us to. To recognize that He is 
keeping His promises. He is working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That He's at work constantly to bring His will to pass. And Jonah was just at a place where he resisted it as often we are as well. And the message here is, if God is at work to do it, we need to submit to it and thankfully enter into it for God's glory.